the title of the message this, this morning is Judge, then Judge Some More. And I thought that would be kind of humorous given our text. Let's read, if you would, chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we, we thank you so much for speaking to us, Father. Lord, we understand that uh, you are giving us some very clear instructions for how we are to live the Christian life. And Father, as, as you speak to us today in your word, I pray that you would open our our minds to understand, that you would illuminate the text before our, before our gaze, Lord, that we would comprehend everything that you are trying to say to us. And I pray, God, that your spirit would drive that truth home into our hearts, and that you would show us, Lord, how we are to be your people in this world. Father, show us the right way to judge, and help us to judge rightly. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Montaigne tells the story of a judge in ancient Persia by the name of Sisamnes. Sisamnes was well-respected and well-loved, but his desire more than anything was to be well-liked. He was a judge presiding over the affairs of men on behalf of the king of Persia at the time, whose name was Cambyses II. And as he was judging, there came to him a case of a wealthy farmer, a wealthy upscale individual who had stolen the field of a poorer farmer and had used that farmer's field for his own and had basically taken it away from the poor farmer. The poor farmer came to the judge, uh, I'm mispronouncing it, Sisamnes, and asked him for justice. And the wealthy farmer came to Sisamnes and knew that this was going to be bad for business, it was going to look bad, and uh, he basically gave Sisamnes a bribe and asked him, to refuse the claim of the poorer farmer. And so Sisamnes did, preferring to be liked and preferring the advantage of the favor with the wealthy farmer over the non-advantage of the poorer farmer. The outcry grew very great as poorer farmers flocked to the streets and said, this is wrong, a great injustice has been done, our brother has not been regarded before the court. The outcry came before the king of Persia, Cambyses. And as he considered what to do with this wicked judge, Simsomnes, he determined that he would have him executed. And as he was having him executed, he said to Simsomnes, Simsomnes, because you regard the life and the well-being of your fellow countrymen so cheaply, because you hold their lives at such low value, I also hold your life, Sisamnes, at low value. And he had him executed by having him skinned alive. And he took the leather skin from Sisamnes, 
And he had the bench where Sisamnes judged from, the bench upon which he sat and rendered his verdicts, covered in the leather flesh of Sisamnes. And then he went to Sisamnes' son, a young man, his firstborn son, a young man by the name of Otan. And Cambyses II said to Otan, did you regard the life of your father as precious? And Otan said, yes, I did. And Cambyses said, will you regard the lives of your countrymen the same way as you regard the life of your father? And Otan said, yes, I will. And he had Otan sit upon that chair, covered with the leather of his own father, as he presided over the affairs of his fellow countrymen. Simsomni's fatal flaw was that he did not value the well-being and the lives of those around him as much as he valued his own advantage. He preferred to be liked by the wealthy farmer, and he treasured that more than the lives of the poorer farmers and the lower class around him. That's the same decision that each of us have to make in this room today. When we make decisions, when we come to judgments, are we making them according to the righteousness of Christ? Or are we making those judgments based upon personal preference and a desire to be liked rather than holding to the truth of the Scriptures? That's the challenge that Jesus places before us in this text today. It is widely quoted and even more widely misunderstood. Jesus makes the statement in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, in order to understand that first statement, you have to look at it in the context of verses 1 to 6. The way that this passage breaks down, just to kind of give you a roadmap of where we're going, verses 1 and 2 articulate the principle that Jesus is giving to us. Verses 3 and 4 illustrate that principle and how that principle should be lived out. And then verses 5 and 6 very clearly and specifically apply that principle to our lives today. So let's look at the principle. Jesus makes the statement, judge not that you be not judged. If John 3.16 is the most widely memorized scripture in the Bible, this is probably in distinction to John 3.16 the most widely quoted and misquoted and misapplied passage in the Bible. There are a few others. I don't have any statistical data to prove that claim. It just seems to me a likely case. If I had a nickel for every time I was told, judge not, lest you be judged, I'd probably have around 20 or 30 extra dollars in my pocket. You know, I'd, I've, I've had that you know, said to me quite regularly. But as you look at what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, he makes a statement, judge not that you be not judged. It's a play on words. You can't see this in the ESV translation because, again, translations are primarily written for a grade 6 reading level. They're trying to make sure that it's, it's, well, it's easy to be understood. But if you were to see it in the Greek, you'd see there's a play on words. He makes the statement in verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. And then in verse 2, he says, for with the judgment you judge, and the ESV says with the judgment you pronounce, but it's really all three words there are the same root word. It's with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And then the very next phrase, with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. So 
verses 1 and 2, he's saying the same words over and over again. And that means that he's probably making a play on words. Let's consider the text. The word judge can mean one of two things. It can mean the process you utilize to arrive at a decision, or it can also mean the verdict that you pronounce, the punishment that you give. Okay, so these are the two main ideas of this word, and that's how we understand it today. We sit in judgment, we are condemning someone, we are offering a verdict, we are making a a statement of their guilt or their punishment, or we will sit down to judge a matter. We will think about it, we will ponder it, we will consider it. Those are the two ways that we use the word, and those are the two ways that Jesus is using this word here. Now, it says, judge not that you be not judged. I'm proposing to you that what Jesus is actually saying here is it's a play on words. The first time he uses the word judge not, he is saying, and again, this is, this is difficult, but I think the rest of the text bears this out, be careful with how quickly you condemn. In other words, be careful with the process you go through to arrive speedily or hastily at a verdict. Be careful with that. Because if you do it the wrong way, you will incur God's judgment. Now, how do I arrive at that? Look at the very next verse, verse 2. He says there, with the judgment you judge, or as the ESV translates it, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, okay? Now, as we look at that, that seems most likely that that would be a pronouncement of guilt. That would be a a verdict. That would be sort of a guilty sentence, okay? Uh, That would be a prescription for the degree of punishment that you deserve. But if you look at the very next phrase, he says, with the measure you measure it will be measured to you. And that's a radically different word. So in the first phrase, he says, with the verdict you pronounce, be careful, because the way you pronounce it, it will be used to be pronounced against you. And then the very next phrase is the measure that you use. And measure has nothing to do with pronouncing judgment or verdict. It's actually a cooking term, the way that you make bread. You need so much flour. You need so much eggs. You need so much milk, so forth and so on. And so you have a measuring cup, and it will have certain quantities or certain standards, and as you go through the process of making your bread, you're going to consult a cookbook, and you're going to pour milk or or flour or whatever the case may be into this measuring cup. And so there's a process that you're going through. There's a standard in which you are adjudicating the ingredients that need to go into your bread. And so these are two ideas that Jesus mentions back to back, because in both verses, he uses the same word repeatedly. He's clearly... He is clearly making a play on words here. The judgment that you judge with, and that's all-inclusive, the severity of the punishment you pronounce with the manner in which you go through the process of determining guilt and blame, that whole process, if it is not honoring to God, will be the process that he uses when he measures and judges and weighs you in the balances. That's the warning that Christ gives here in verses 1 and 2. Now, we are called to judge. Not in the sense that we are here to determine the degree or the capacity that people should suffer in terms of punishment. But we are called to sit in consideration upon this world around us. To evaluate it and to arrive at an informed God-honoring perspective. How do I know this? There's a couple of verses in your Bible which 
Again, if we didn't understand the subtlety of what Christ is saying here in Matthew 7, 1 to 6, it would seem that the Bible contradicts itself. First verse I want to throw at you is Luke 12, 57. Jesus, speaking to his followers, makes this statement, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And it's a rebuke. The question he's offering to the disciples is, you guys should stop and think about it. Think about what you're doing and think about how you're arriving at the decisions you're arriving at and and how you're making the choices that you're making. He is saying to them, why not just judge the right way? But if Jesus is saying don't judge, and if we understand that term in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 is all-inclusive, all-encompassing, then that means it would be contradicting what he's saying in Luke 12, 57. He is basically rebuking them and implying, exhorting them to judge the right way, which would imply that you would have to judge. And then over in John 7, 24, he works a miracle on the Sabbath. They think that's awesome that he's able to heal people on the Sabbath, but they're a little choked up that he's doing a miracle on the Sabbath. So they're, they're sort of angry at him and they're upset with him. And he is sitting there and explaining to them about how the law of Moses was given by Moses, but something greater than Moses is here. And he says to them, I just worked a miracle on the Sabbath. And the rebuke he gives them in John 7, 24 is, don't judge by appearances. In other words, they're all angry and upset with him for what he's just done. And he's like, just look beneath the surface. You're all upset that I worked on the Sabbath. But you're missing the fact that I just performed a miracle and healed a man on the Sabbath. So think critically. Look beneath the basic surface of it all. Look to the depths of the real heart of the matter. And then he makes a statement, judge with right judgment. So in the Gospels, we have two different statements from Jesus. He's exhorting his disciples to judge with a right judgment, and then he's rebuking people who are critical of him for not judging with a right judgment. Either way you look at it, the Christian life as we follow Jesus is going to require that we exercise our intellect and come to an understanding of the world around us and to form God-honoring, scripturally-informed perspectives and judgments and decisions about the world in which we live. Now, what happens all too often, you've got typical evangelical Christian. We'll call him Curtis the Christian. I was, I was having this conversation. With, it's like, what are some names from some, I'm trying to come up with imaginary characters, and, and I was told Curtis is a good name. So we've got Curtis the Christian, and he's your typical evangelical Christian, goes to church, uh, you know, is a part of a Sunday school class or goes to a life group and, and all of this sort of thing, and he has a heart for the Lord. And then you've got his good friend, unbeliever, doesn't care about God, thinks all that Christian business is a bunch of funny monkey business, and, you know, it's just all fairy tale, and, and we'll call him Preston the Pagan, okay? So we've got Curtis the Christian, and we've got Preston the Pagan. And, of course, Preston the Pagan, because he has no God and he has no morality, he is mean and angry and spiteful and, and he treats people badly and he's, he's with the employees that work for him in his office place. He, you know, he basically treats them like they're his minions and he just walks all over them. And, and he's just a real bad guy to get along with. So Curtis the Christian comes to his friend whom he loves and cares about, you know, Preston the Pagan. And he says, Preston, Mr. Preston Pagan, you know, you, you, you know that someday God is going to look at the way that you're living your life and, and he's, gonna, he's, not, he's not happy with you because you haven't trusted in Jesus, you haven't repented of your sins, and you need to trust in Jesus and you need to repent of your sins and, and you need to not treat people around you so badly. And of course, Preston the pagan doesn't know any scripture, but he knows one. 
John 7, 1. Oh, Curtis. Curtis, 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 Curtis. Curtis, Curtis, Curtis. You know, the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. And of course, typical Curtis the Christian, he hangs his head in shame, says, you're right, I'm sorry, and he walks away. Now stop and think about the essence of the argument here. God loves you, he will judge you. And what this text is inferring is that there will be a judge who judges even the way we judge. Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not lest you be judged. Now, whether or not we judge rightly or whether or not we judge wrongly, the text is very clearly saying there is a God who is going to judge us. In other words, somebody at some point in time, God is going to judge us. Some point in time, we will stand before him and be judged and have to give an account. So Preston says to Curtis, judge not. Curtis comes to Preston, says, you're going to be judged if you don't repent. And Preston's response is basically, yes, there is a judge. And Curtis is like, oh, I'm sorry, and walks away. But just think about the absurdity of that for a second. There's a judge. Yes, there is a judge. I'm sorry. That makes no sense. That absolutely should not happen. When we come to our friends and we say to them, listen, God loves you, you know you're accountable to him. And they're witty rhetorical comeback is, judge not lest ye be judged. They don't even see that with the scripture they're quoting, they're condemning themselves. You're right. You're right. Maybe I have missed the mark. Maybe I haven't accurately judged your situation, but that doesn't change the fact that somewhere, some point in time, God is still going to judge you. So the question remains the same. What does God say about this? What does God say about your life? What does he say about your rejection of Jesus? You see, we haven't actually gotten out of the point in the first place. And yet, so often, we allow that statement to deter us from speaking the truth. And that is nowhere near, even remotely, what Jesus is saying in this passage. Now, he does say we have to remove the speck from our, the, the log from our eye. And he does exhort that. But I want you to look at how he illustrates what he's saying. He's saying, judge not, lest ye be judged. And that term can mean one of two things. It can mean the process in which you judge or the verdict you pronounce. I think it's all-encompassing. And what Jesus is saying here is you need to take care of the way you judge. You be careful in the verdicts you pronounce because God's going to judge the way you go through the process of your judgments and the way that you pronounce those verdicts. You need to take care. That's what he's saying. With the judgment you pronounce, you're going to be judged. And the way you measure the situation, that's the measure that's going to be applied to you. So he is saying that, but now look at how he fleshes that out. Look at how he illustrates it in verses 3 and 4. He makes a statement, why do, you see, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And you'll notice that's a question of motive there. The why gets to the heart of the matter. He's, in the next verse, he's going to say how. But here he's saying, why is it? That when it comes to looking at people around you, when it comes to looking at what's going on in their lifestyles, you're so quick to see the smallest speck that goes on in their eyes, and yet at the same time, you're missing the law coming out of your own eye. The question he's asking assumes that you know there's a log in your eye, and that you are seeing the speck in your brother's eye. And so the question he's asking is a heart question. Why? Why does this happen? You're aware there's a log in your eye, and yet you just focus on what's going on in your brother's eye. Now, 
we hear that and we think, absolutely, we have to deal with the sin in our lives. We need to get rid of the log in our own eye and then, and then we'll, be, we'll see clearly to help our brother. And that's exactly what Jesus says. That's exactly what he says in this passage. He never says, hey, you know what? It's cool that he's got a speck in his eye. Don't worry about that. In fact, the Greek word here, what it means is it's translated speck, but it, it wouldn't be like you know, a speck of dust or something like that. It would be something comparable to like a splinter. It's still very painful. You have this thing in your eye, like this splinter, and it's going to hurt, and it's not right, and it shouldn't be there, and it should be removed. But people who have like a two-by-four plank sticking out of their eye are not exactly in the best position to do that. That's what Jesus is saying. He makes a statement as he illustrates the principle he just spoke about. He says, why do you see the speck or the splinter or the sliver that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? And then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, How is it possible? How can you even say to your brother, let me take the splinter or the sliver out of your eye. How how can you even do that when, as he says, you have a log in your own eye? So the question here is, let us, when it comes to judging people, let us, when it comes to evaluating what's going on in their lives, be sure to take stock of our own lives. Are we honoring God in every area of our life? Nowhere in the passage does he say, don't try to address the speck or the sliver or the splinter. What he says is to take it out and then you'll see clearly. That's what he says in the very next verse. He says in verse 5, hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then forget your brother. Forget about it. That's not what he says. First take out the log And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When it comes to judging other people, when it comes to evaluating their sin and what they've got going on in their life, when it comes to reflecting and sitting in judgment upon how they are living. Now, Scripture nowhere says we are not to do that. The implication is that if we love our brothers and sisters and if we care about them and we want them to find all the joy that there is for them in Christ, they will only find that joy by living lives that are fully honoring to him. And so to speak to someone about an ongoing sin problem in their life is an effort to bring about their joy and their happiness. But before we do that, we have to take a very careful inventory of our own lives first. As a man who hangs out with other guys on a regular basis, one of the biggest struggles that is facing men in this age in which we live, the internet age, is online pornography. Now, it is real easy to condemn people who struggle with that, to say, oh, why don't you just stop looking at that stuff? Really, what's your problem? And if you have never struggled with that, then you just don't understand what that can be like for an individual who's been caught up in that. If you come to faith later in life and you have spent your whole adolescent life growing up and much of your young adulthood seeing nothing wrong with pornography and and looking at pornography, 
And that, that day comes in which you make the decision to step away from that sort of thing, to step away from that temptation, and you want to honor God in your life, there is a real spiritual pull going on in your soul. And you can fully know all day long that God doesn't want you to look at pornography, and you know all day long that it's something you should not do, and you struggle, and you struggle, and you struggle. And then you come to a men's accountability group where you freely acknowledge that. I struggle with this. And then there are men in that group who have never struggled with that. And all too often, rather than looking at our brothers with compassion and seeking to come to them and assist them, we may not say it out loud, but we look at them with condemnation. I can't believe that guy looks at them. That's just gross. How can he do that? Church, the person that can help the most in this situation is another individual who has struggled and succeeded in their fight with pornography. And you should never look at a down at a person with whatever the struggle may be, whether it's pornography or drug addiction, whatever the case may be. You should never, ever look down upon a person who struggles with those types of things. If you yourself have never struggled and have no experience of what that temptation looks like, we can affirm all day long. The scripture says that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. But in terms of being critical and looking down at people who do struggle with those things, as long as they're being honest about it and they're fighting the good fight of faith, we should never, ever condemn them or be critical of them or shun them. Jesus' statement here, he says, judge rightly. Judge the right way. And it's a call for humility makes a statement, judge not that you be not judged. And that's a play on words. Judge the right way. The measure with which you measure will be measured to you. So have you never struggled with anything in your life? Perhaps you have a friend who struggles with pornography. You've never struggled with that at all, but you have something darker. And you find it so easy to condemn him when you yourself struggle in a different way. The scriptures are calling for us to all be focused on living lives of righteousness and holiness for the Lord. To remove the log from our eyes, so to speak. But never are we to sit there and say, it's okay that you have a speck in your eye. But that we are to work together. Each person doing his part. Each person working to help each other. And that's what Christ says here. He says, in verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out. Now, this is a fantastic illustration. Jesus is the master teacher. Have you ever had something stuck in your eye? Most of us have. Speck of dust, something's in there. Your eye's watering, you can't see clearly. You're all like, and you're rubbing it. And they say, don't rub it, but of course you can't because, you know, it hurts, right? So we rub it. And you can't see what you're doing. So if you can't see what you're doing because your eyes are watering, you can't see it, and you go to the mirror, well, that's not going to do anything. You won't be able to look in the mirror carefully enough to see what's going on in there to get the thing out. Every time I've ever had something in my eye and my eye is watering, guess who I have to go to for help? Shanti. I have to go to Shanti and say, Shanti, will you get this thing out of my eye? And then, you know, you're watering in your eyes, and you're, like, wanting to squint them, and then she's like, 
you know, and like trying to pry them open. You're like, oh, it hurts, it hurts. But you know, she's got to do this, right? And so that's the illustration that Jesus is making here. Now, what good would it be to me if I'm all like, oh, I got something in my eye, Shanti, help? And she's got like a plank going out here. And she's like, oh, I've got this. And she's like swinging this thing around, you know, like, oh, come here. And she beats me upside the head with this thing, right? Like, that's not going to work. And yet that is the spirit, that is almost perfect spiritual analogy, We do not judge rightly when we've got glaring, unrepentant, habitual, ongoing sin in our lives. It's like a plank. It does not make us more compassionate, and it does not make us more useful to our fellow man. When we refuse to deal with the sin that's going on in our own lives, we are less helpful. We are not compassionate, and we are more judgmental. But at the same time, if there's ever been a person in this room in which you have really struggled to get the two-by-four out, and you have buckled down and you've gripped your fists and you're clenching your teeth and you're working so hard to live a life that is honoring to the Lord, and then you see your brother struggling with something, you are in that moment moved with compassion. Whereas the person is just like, oh, whatever, I'm fine. My life's great. And you got this guy struggling with something over here. You have no compassion for them. And the truth is, you're the one that needs the most assistance. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Now, he is speaking about making informed decisions. You know this because of what he says in the very next verse. We are tempted to hear this teaching. Judge not lest ye be judged. And as we hear that teaching, the wrong application which many Christians take away is to say, okay, Bible says don't judge. I'm just not going to form an opinion one way or the other. Hands off. I'm indifferent to the whole thing. I'm out. You got your struggles. I got my struggles. Hey, we're all good. And we are not going to get involved. And we're not going to try and help each other. And we're not going to strive to live lives that are more honoring and more glorifying to the Lord. We are literally indifferent. And we think that's the God-honoring approach. Look at what Jesus says in the very next verse. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, in this passage, Jesus is obviously referencing a sacrifice when he says, don't give dogs what is holy. That's clearly a reference to the portion of the animal that would have been sacrificed on the altar, and so this is a holy sort of thing that's supposed to be devoted to the Lord. And what Jesus is saying is here, this thing that you sacrifice, this thing that you've given to God, don't take that holy thing and throw it to the dogs. In first century Jerusalem, there would have been wild packs of dogs roaming around the streets. These aren't like your cuddly, fun, toto-type dogs that you're going to cuddle up with, you know. These aren't like little chihuahuas that you pet and keep with you on your couch. These are just wild, nasty scavenger dogs. In first century Jerusalem, when they had trash, there was no trash collection agency. There was no recycling bin that you put out on the curb on trash collection day. You basically, for the most part, took your trash, and if you were rude, you just threw it out in the streets. That's where a lot of it went. If you were nice, you would go down the road and out the city ways to the Valley of Gehenna, and you'd throw it into into that pit there, and it would be burned up there. But no matter what, you got a whole pile of trash, and it wasn't like modern-day landfills. It was just, you know, just this 
heap of trash out in the valley. And so wild dogs would scavenge and pick over that. So all throughout Jerusalem, you'd have dogs roaming the streets, snagging trash off of the streets, and then going out to the valley out there and getting trash out there. And so these were nasty, grotesque, scavenger, kind of mean, cruel dogs. And what Jesus is saying here is whatever is precious, whatever is holy, whatever you would devote and give to the Lord, don't give it to the scavengers. And then the very next phrase, he says, whatever is of great value. Pearls are rare. They're not something that anybody wears. They're precious. They're rare, and because of how rare they are, they are valuable. They're costly. And he says, whatever is valuable, whatever is costly, don't give that to pigs. What would a pig do with a pearl? eat it or trample it. A pig could never appreciate the value of a pearl. Now, as we hear what Jesus is saying here in this passage, we've got to understand, he's talking about sharing the gospel with people. He's talking about loving people enough to tell them about Jesus. The most holy thing is Christ himself. The most precious thing, the most costly thing is Jesus. And as we seek to give that to the world, he makes this statement right after he's just gotten done saying, judge not lest ye be judged. He then says, don't give what is precious to dogs and pigs. Well, that means we're going to have to sit in judgment on these things, right? If Jesus says, don't take what is precious and give it to dogs and pigs, that means we have to, if we're going to obey him here, have to take some time identifying, in some capacity, dogs and pigs. I know you're all looking at me like, okay, so how do we do that? That's not the point of today's message. Don't take what is holy and give it to people who are not worthy of it. And so what that means is you've got to evaluate somehow as you sit in judgment upon the lives of those around you, those who are receptive to the gospel, those who are hostile to the gospel, and you have to reflect on, are my efforts in sharing Christ with this person a total waste? Is it squandering precious time that I only have so much of? Is it squandering precious truths that matter so much to me and yet are so clearly shunned by them? Am I really honoring the Lord by taking what is so beautiful and so precious, the death of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, the fact that I have a relationship with the Father, that which matters most to me? Am I squandering it by trying to push it off onto people who refuse to value it and don't even know what to do with it? Now, right there off the bat, you have to ask yourself, do I really value Jesus? Is his life and the gospel precious to me? And then you have to identify the pigs and the dogs, and you have to identify whether or not that which is precious to you is precious to them. And so you actually consider Jesus not very precious and not very valuable. If you take it and you continue to force it upon people who don't 
want it. I think that's really what Jesus is getting at here. If you go to someone and you say, I've got the best thing in the whole world. It is amazing. It is wonderful. It is forgiveness. And you try to give it to someone who says, I don't need any forgiveness. I don't need Jesus. Now, obviously, you should go that first time and share the gospel with them. And it's well worth your time to take it several times. But there comes a moment in time in which you have to say, why am I trying to take something that is so precious to me and give it to someone who has no regard for it whatsoever? And Jesus very clearly is saying that that's a decision you're going to have to make. If you keep trying to give what is precious to people who don't value it, then it reflects upon whether or not you really value it. The stinging rebuke in this text is, why would we take something that was so wonderful to us and throw it in the street or throw it in the pig pen? Anybody that would take something precious and throw it in the street and throw it in the pig pen, at the end of the day, you have to conclude that what you see as precious, they don't really see it as that precious. And so to pull it all together here, what you get from this technical teaching from Jesus is not stop judging. Judge and judge carefully and judge some more and keep evaluating and keep reflecting and keep scrutinizing and make sure that in all of your judgments and in all of your decisions, you're honoring the Lord. And in many cases, when it comes to helping your brothers and sisters in Christ deal with the sin in their lives, you got to look at your own first. And in cases of unbelievers and people who don't know Jesus, you're going to have to evaluate whether or not they consider what you consider most precious, precious at all. Otan became a famous judge in Persia. He was not always liked. He was not always popular. In fact, there were many times in which he rendered decisions and judgments which 49 to 51% of the people in the room hated it, and the other 49 to 51% loved it. Sometimes, as he was called to sit upon matters and to reflect critically about what was right and what was wrong, he became the most unliked person in all of the kingdom. And as he was an old man approaching his death, as the story goes, a peasant came up to him in the streets and said, Otan, how is it that you are so indifferent to so many? And his response was this, it is because of how precious I consider everyone's life. It is because of how I treasure the people upon whom I am called to sit in judgment that I render decisions which don't always make me well-liked but are truly the right decision. And that's the ball game in a nutshell. You are called to judge, but not for any old reason, 
or any old which way that you would judge. You're called to consider what God has to say and reflect his judgment in any situation in which you find yourself. And I can just tell you that will sometimes leave you unpopular and unliked. But it comes back to the question, which is clearly stated right here in verse 8, verse 6, sorry. What's more precious to you? Being liked or honoring God? Let's bow for a word of prayer.